Good evening. My name is Albert. Welcome to Regeneration. And we're studying the book of uh, 1 Samuel. So in last week's message, we saw the anointing of Saul to a leadership position by Samuel. And we saw how this was privately confirmed by God to Samuel to Saul. And so in looking at that chapter, it was uh, Samuel chapters uh, 9 and chapter 10 through verses 16. And we saw that Saul wasn't looking to be a king that uh, he was merely doing his duty and looking for some of his father's property, namely his dad's donkeys. That's what he was doing. And the, and the best way to hear the call of God is to be about your duty. God uses just the very, very ordinary things in life. And we saw how a position of leadership has no validation except in service, in serving. So we saw that God's burden is always on the welfare of his people. So the first step to the calling, because there's three steps here that we're going to see in chapters 9 through 11, and the first step we saw last week, and tonight we're going to see the next two steps, but the first step was this private confirmation between God, Samuel, and Saul, and a private confirmation happened with obedience to a mundane, ordinary thing. He was looking for donkeys, right? And so nothing dramatic, and God tends to work in ordinary things like love-driven obedience, that you're just obedient and he works in those things. And sometimes we look for the dramatic and we wonder why God's not working in things. It's because we're looking up here when he's just kind of working down here. And so, although we witnessed this private confirmation last week, leadership is actually a public thing. We look at chapters 10 and 11 tonight and we'll see how a leader is publicly confirmed. And the Bible is neither solely on the side of individual religious experiences that individuals have, nor is it solely on the side of the power of of a group's decision. What we find in the Bible is that it's a wise balance of both. And Saul is a really good person to study because we find someone that some of us may relate to. He starts out as this quiet, non-aggressive guy, which some of you leaders may be. And we'll see this about Saul's anointing in the upcoming chapters. And and then we find people like David who are quite different. And then we see Samuel, whose calling we've seen, who's neither overly non-aggressive, nor is he overly aggressive. So there's this diversity in the types of leaders God calls. And what all three leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David, have in common in their stories is this private and public tension. So we'll, we'll see what this tension actually is. And let's start by asking the question, why do we ordain ministers or install them? Why do we do that? Well, last week we saw God's private confirmation. And we're going to find there's also a public confirmation in this week's passage. And we're going to find that there's a public recognition of a leader's acceptance by the people. We're going to see why public ceremonies like ordination or installation are important. We're also going to see a transition in leadership taking place for Israel. And in this time period, it's about 1050 B.C. And changes in leadership, they're rarely without strain, right? There's always some type of strain. There's a, there's a change in leadership from this leadership model of the judges that they used to have to this leadership model of kingship. And so Israel has this new way of doing things, a new church government, if you will. Right? And the leaders were wrong in the way that they asked for kingship, and they were wrong in their motive, but even though they were wrong in wanting this kingship at this particular time, God was faithful in delivering His people. 
And Israel was being idolatrous in wanting a king at this time. Yet God worked in the deliverance of his people. So let's start verse 17, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, for who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. God is the one who selected Saul. And here we see a type of casting of lots. And the lots were were some type of dice that were around the priest's neck called the Urim and the Thummim. And how they worked isn't exactly known, but what happened was that Saul's tribe was selected by these lots. And then his clan was selected, and then his family was selected, and then Saul's whereabouts were found out from this. Now what would have happened if, if Samuel just came out and said, Here you go, here's your new king, Saul. Here's a new King Saul, right? There would be quite a disagreement, don't you think? Right? If God showed Samuel that Saul was to be king, God can also work it out that the casting of lots would come up with the same result, right? So it's okay. You can depend on God there. And, and Saul would still be king. The way God orchestrated this saved a lot of pain because out of all those 12 tribes, Benjamin was chosen. Do you think the other 11 would have been like, hey, what's up with that? How can you just choose that guy? We didn't have any say in that. And so, out of all these clans, then Matri was chosen. And then it was Saul, the son of Kish. And then God caused the lot to come out the same as he told Samuel how it would come out. That it was going to be Saul. But out of all 12 tribes that were available, none of the tribes could say that they were excluded this way. It was casting lots. It was fair. So no one could claim that the process was manipulated by man. And God giving confirmation privately to Samuel and Saul is now being further confirmed with Lot so that no one has uh, any basis for complaining. Yeah, right, right? They still complain. And everyone is included, and it, it comes out this way, and it helps bring about things a little bit more peaceably. So what is key is that the Lord wanted Saul to have a public confirmation of his private calling, or his private selection, which was revealed to Samuel. And the people of God needed to know whom the Lord had confirmed. Now, where was Saul? He was hiding in the baggage, right? In verse 22, he's hiding in the baggage. Saul was hesitant to say anything to his uncle in verse 16. And he was aware of his position in society in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 21. And he was claiming that he was the, uh, the, the least of the tribes. So we don't have a picture of this arrogant or overconfident man here. He's, he's tall, he's handsome, but he's not arrogant. He's like a perfect guy. It's like Nate. And so uh, the, people, the, people's, the people's reaction is, is very positive from these verses over the choice of a king. 
It's very positive. Verse 25, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And you notice here that God's law provided all the direction. The rights, the duty, the ordinances of the king. They were written for the king. There was a direction, a law governing the king. The king was under God's law. So you remember Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. We won't go over the entire section again uh, that we did before. uh, but, But it shows there that there were boundaries for the king to serve under that he can just do whatever he wanted. So, but let's just pull out a few of those verses in that section. Let's just do 18 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. The king is subject to God's law and God's word. God's law provides all the direction for the king of his nation, and the king is subject to it. He can't do as he pleases. He's under God's law. Now, the law can't be perfectly kept to earn a right standing with God, right? We have an understanding of that? that. That's not its purpose. That's not the law's purpose. The law, the law is like a weight scale. Right? The, the, the weight scale can, can show you how unhealthy you are, but it won't change your unhealthy weight. Right? It can tell you that your diet needs to change, that your physical activity needs to change, that your lifestyle choices need to change, but it's not meant to lose the weight for you. It tells you how bad your health is, but it doesn't change things for you. Right? That's how the law is. It, it'll tell you the sinner that you are. It'll show you how, how far short you come before a holy God. And, and from the law, we can see how far we are from obedience to God. And like the scale, we can see how bad things are for us, but it can't get us healthy. We need something else for that. Right? We, need, we need a treadmill or a stair climber or an elliptical or something. But the law is in place. Right? The, the, the weight scale is in place for the king. And we Christians know that we are under the law as a guide for our life. And wh- so like Romans 12 through 15, Galatians 5 through 6, Ephesians 4 through 6, Colossians 3 through 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 through 5, James. What do those books share with us? Those scriptures are giving us direction for Christian living. That's what they are. You know, back when I was an EMT, I was an EMT during my college years in L.A. It was one of the four jobs that I had to help pay for college. And back when I was an EMT, there was no GPS. There was no Google Maps. There was none of that stuff. You know, my partners and I, you know what we used? The Thomas Guide. You guys know what that is? It's the typewriter before computers. It's the abacus before calculators. The Thomas Guide. And so the, the Thomas Guides, they're, they're so detailed. They're, so, they're, they're awesome. I like them. And, and they show everything. And they're, they're absolutely essential to finding out where we needed to go on a call. Right? Someone, someone had a heart attack. Where do we go? You've got to look at the Thomas Guide. So with so many s- streets and so many lives at stake, you can't just drive around... 
we're going to find the heart attack guy sooner or later. And you can't do that. And yes, the maps are confining. They are. They only show you that much. They're confining. And there are only certain ways to get to places, right? A house only had one street this way and one street this way. You can't go a different way. I can only drive down what the Thomas Guide is telling me to get there quickly, to get there correctly. But it is restrictive confinement that is freeing. It's a freedom of not wasting valuable time. It's a freedom of not driving around lost. It's a freedom of being safe so I don't drive the wrong way on a one-way street. This is how God's laws work. It's not meant to make our lives miserable. It's meant to direct our lives the way that they're supposed to be lived, to have self-control, to have a purity of life, to have a holiness of desires, to have a carefulness about our speech, to have an absence of bitterness, etc. That's what the Bible does. So we find ourselves in the same position as the King of Israel as believers in Jesus. We're under the law. God's law provided all the direction that we would need. Verse 26, And Saul also went home to Gebeah, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Notice how God's king causes division. The reaction was so positive before in verse 24, but not everyone bought into Saul's appointment. Now why did they disapprove? Because some doubted Saul's ability to deliver them. Now, is this normal? Have you ever disagreed with the appointment of a boss or a minister or election of some government official? Did you ever doubt their ability? This happens all the time. It happens now. It happened then. And it happened to Saul. It happened to Jesus. It happened to it happens to leaders right now. And some of you are thinking Saul is not a type of Jesus Christ, is he? And no, I'm not saying that Saul is a type of Jesus as we're going to see that Saul is totally inadequate or eventually and he's a totally rebellious king unlike our king Jesus. And he was a failure of a king so Saul is not a, a type of Jesus in terms of the person but there is a comparison in terms of the office. The office of a leader. And this is the, at this point in history Saul was God's choice to deliver Israel as their king. So I'm not talking about Saul the person as a typology of Christ. I'm talking about his office, the office of leadership. And because Saul was God's choice, Israel had a duty to follow him as God's chosen leader. But there was division for Saul, just as there was for Jesus Christ. And there was, there was a lot of division when our King Jesus was here in the flesh. And the reaction to his kingship was somewhat similar, wasn't it? And you look at John chapter 6, verse 42. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Isn't this similar to what Saul went through when people were wondering, how can this donkey-finding hick from the stick save us? How can that be? We know his family. We know his dad has a bunch of donkeys. But how can he be a king? How can he lead us? And it was the same division for Jesus and of God's chosen leaders today. And there are always divisions. There are still people doubting, wondering about Jesus. They're thinking, how can someone who died on a cross 2,000 years ago as a criminal rule over me? How can that be? How can a carpenter affect my marriage 
and other relationships in a positive way. Carpenter. Well, what can a guy who hung out with the poor and the sick, uh, the outcast, do for me after I take my last breath on earth? What can a guy who had no place to rest his head tell me about peace, about conquering fear, about overcoming hardships? This, this man can't save us. It happens today. And there's still division among us here on earth. Just as Jesus had said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. See, God's leaders cause division. So does the Bible see these people who doubt God's chosen as wrong? Yes, it does. The Bible is basically calling them fools. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Romans chapter 13, 1 through 4, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid." For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. How many many of you like those verses? How many of you are bothered by those verses? I am. I am. The Bible doesn't want us to be stupid or or blind in our submission to to authority, but, but it doesn't want us to be negative towards human authority. And these verses are, aren't politically correct or they're not very popular, but God's word is pretty clear. We shouldn't walk around with this chip on our shoulders towards authority. Right? It's, it's, it's kind of like that Thomas Guide map thing, right? I, I, um, I, I follow it, right? And, and, it's, and, I, and I wonder, yeah, man, these things are confining and, and there are only certain ways to get to places. And you know what? I never rebelled against those maps. It was like... No, I can, I can take my ambulance off-roading and come from behind the house and ram into that fence and get the guy. I can do that. I, I never said, I'm, 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 I'm not going to use these because they're inhibiting me. These maps, they, they're not freeing. And sure, they're restrictive because they showed me only certain highways and certain streets I can drive, drive down. And that's kind of like the law and that's what the scriptures are telling us. And even though it kind of rubs us the wrong way, it's still... What the, what the Bible's telling us. Now, is, is the public ceremony or public installation service for Saul or the people? Yeah, it helped Saul feel legit. Right? Helped them feel legit. But it's, it's probably just as much for the people. And, and you notice that, that God touched the hearts of some of the valiant men. And this is something that only God can do. Through that public installation, God moved some people to come behind Saul and fully support Saul. So how did Saul react to those worthless ones who didn't go along with the plan? He just kept silent. Those of us who are in positions of authority and leadership, we need to remember this. And this is something I really struggle with. I have a really hard time just keeping quiet. Let's deal with it. Let's talk it out. Right? Let's talk. But sometimes it's the right thing to do. Be quiet. 
And as we move into chapter 11, there are some things to note before we head into these verses. It's, it's one thing to be ordained or appointed, but it's quite another thing for someone to do their job successfully, isn't it? And we all have experienced politicians, ministers, or bosses at work who have done a poor job as a leader. And the latter half of chapter 10 showed us that public ceremonies are, are not to be despised for God is at work in them. And he had worked through the casting of lots in the ceremony, and he had touched the hearts of certain valiant men. And in the earlier part of chapter 10, God had privately confirmed Saul to Samuel and given proof to Saul himself. However, private confirmation and public ceremony, no matter how moving they are, no matter how uh, much emotion they draw out, that's not enough. That's not enough. There has to be a further confirmation. There has to be a third step. It must happen in life. And here also, God is involved, and He was in the other two steps, private confirmation, public confirmation, but God has to be apparent in the life of that leader that's called. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words, of the men of Jabesh. What was the crisis here? Now, east of the Jordan River, there were two and a half tribes of Israel were living there. And Judges chapter 11 tells us the, the Ammonites had fought the Israelites earlier for this territory, and the Israelites won. And now it seems that Nahash and the Ammonites, they, they're wanting revenge. And not only do they want to conquer their land back, but they also want to humiliate the Israelites by gouging out the right eyes of all the males. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us that this was already happening, that this, was, this had been done to other Israelites before. And other sources indicate that it was a common practice for the left eye to be covered by a shield, and with the right eye would come out from the shield, and that's how they would fight. So the left eye would be covered, the, the right eye would be used, and so... What they're basically telling them is if we gouge out your right eye, you're no more military. Get rid of the fighting, right? They weren't left-hand friendly back then. It wasn't like they had like right-handed gloves and you can throw left-handed. You, you, you were taught this way, right? So typically a soldier was trained to hold their shield in their left hand and their nunchucks in their right hand. So, so this was the fighting position to, to, to take out the right eye. That's a, a serious fighting disadvantage, basically saying, no more military. You're done. And now you look at verse 2 where Nahash says, bring reproach on all Israel. Nahash wants to humiliate. He wants to disgrace the Israelites. And this is much like today, where we have people in our present day who want to bring about destruction or cause suffering or wreak havoc among followers of Jesus. I was browsing the internet a couple days ago and I, I ran across these rankings from Interpol, where they selected the world's seven most infamous criminals. Number seven is a guy named Joseph Coney. Any of you familiar with this guy? 
He's the head of the Lord's resistance army. Not Lord's army. Lord's resistance army. And it's a terrorist group that that has killed tens of thousands of civilians in Uganda and and the neighboring countries for the past two decades. And they've kidnapped and they've forced children to become soldiers and sex slaves. And then one Christmas day in Congo, over 400 people were killed during a church service. Over 60 children were abducted. Over a thousand houses burnt down by the LRA, led by Joseph Kony. And then the following day, they they hacked to pieces over 40 people, mostly women. And then several weeks later, they torched the church down with worshipers inside the church. This was Nahash the Ammonite. The kind of mind is still with us, with the LRA. So the people of Jabesh Gilead, they were trying to strike a deal with Nahash? Cuckoo, right? Strike a deal. Oh, take your right eye. Okay, that's a good enough deal. Take my right eye. That's that's dumb. And you look at verse 3. Nahash was so arrogant that he agreed to hold off for seven days. He agreed to hold off the attack. Go ahead. Nahash is so cocky. Go ahead. Go look for help. Whatever. We're not losing. We'll take you on. And so why did the messengers come to Gebeah? Why did they go to Gebeah? Here we see how well the, the book of Judges is tied into 1 Samuel. In Judges chapter 19 through 21, Jabesh Gilead didn't join in the gathering of troops to fight against Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And because of that, the city was raided and some of their women were given to marriage to some of the Benjamite men. So now these towns are related. Right? They're related in marriage. And so there's an irony to all of this. The irony is, Jabesh Gilead didn't come to the the rallying of troops, and now they needed the rallying of troops to help them. And then the other thing is, the group that was fought against for their blatant immorality, right, the, the tribe of Benjamin, is now being asked to be the center of the gathering for salvation for Jabesh Gilead. Right? Gibeah was the center of immorality, and now it's the center of hope for salvation. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? Verse 6. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. You notice here in verse 6 that it's the Spirit of God who makes all the difference. You remember that there were people who despised Saul because they questioned how a hick like that, Saul, was going to help them. But, But these people are forgetting that it's not Saul. It is not the person. It is the Spirit of God who makes all the difference. And you read that the Spirit of God came upon Saul or rushed upon Saul. And that Hebrew word for came or rushed occurs three times in the book of Judges regarding Samson. And it's only used of Samson. And it's used three times in Judges chapter 14 and 15. And we see that the same word is being used for Saul in chapter 10 verses 6 and 10 and also in chapter 11 verse 6. And what made this seemingly shy, reserved guy, what made him battle-ready? What made him bold? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God made it so that he could deliver Israel from the Ammonites. And it wasn't Saul. It was the Spirit of God. It's the same for us today. The Spirit of God makes a difference in, in the believer. And Paul writes the, a seemingly timid Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. 
For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. So how about us? What makes weak Christians become strong? The Spirit of God. He makes all the difference. God equips us. He doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It's not about me as a pastor, a person, Albert Lee as a pastor, or as you as a believer. It's all about the Spirit of God who equips us. And sometimes we have these bad attitudes towards the Lord's servants and question how a pastor or an elder or a ministry leader can minister to those in the church or in our community or at all. Right? Sometimes we Christians can be pretty arrogant in our thinking about who is able to serve or who is able to lead. And we can be pretty arrogant about how we look at other servants of the Lord. You know, we have to be careful about this. We have to be really careful about this. We better check our attitudes when we act in such arrogance. When we talk about church leaders in our arrogance, thinking those elders, they're not able to lead the church. Or that pastor, that pastor hasn't said anything or can't say anything that is of help to me. Or whatever your bovine manure attitude leads you to believe. We, we have to realize that the Spirit of God is who makes all the difference. And if you're looking at the person, you're looking at the wrong being. It's about God. And if you keep looking at people rather than looking at the Spirit of God, you're just hurting yourself. You're hurting our church because your attitude stinks. The Spirit of God can take some pretty imperfect, ill-equipped, unimpressive servants and make a difference with them. It's when the Spirit of God equips, not the person's ability or personality or any T you want to use to describe. It's not about that stuff. Verse 7, So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came up out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. So you notice how bold Saul became. It was because of the Spirit of God. Now what if the troops didn't rally? What if they didn't gather? How would that make Saul look as the new king? He risked everything. What happened to Saul? What changed timid, quiet, reserved Saul into this aggressive, angry, decisive ruler? It was the Spirit of God. And this goes back to this old Israelite tradition again in, in the book of Judges. When the Spirit of God fell on a leader, that leader never lost a battle. The leader's life was proof 
of the anointing of the Spirit of God according to the Israelite tradition. It was public confirmation, but it was also the life of the person with those callings. And it may be disturbing that the Spirit of God can produce anger, rage, and then direct a man to make decisive battle plans. But this is just one of those examples in the Scriptures that that we would call righteous anger. And the Bible does not condemn it, but says God is the author of it. Now what happened here was that Saul has now been confirmed in this push and pull of life, right? This tension of private versus public and this calling that he had and detractors pulling him the other way saying, how can this guy lead? And so he was anointed to deliver and now he has indeed delivered the people from oppression. So you see it in the life. You see the calling kind of coming to fruition. And God has confirmed his new king in his life by the Spirit. And you know, being trained with Calvary Chapel, we were taught where God guides, God provides. That's kind of like our mantra. That's what we were taught. So there has to be more to claiming and anointing than just these private religious experiences that we have by ourselves and then these public ceremonies, but also a solid proof of deliverance in the lives of God's people. Leaders are not ordained to rule, but to deliver where God guides, God provides. Verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, why did Saul forgive his detractors? I'd be like, yeah, let's go get him. Right? No, with Saul, Saul realized it was God. God who had given the victory and mercy. And, and so that should accompany this gracious flow and his mercy to his people. He was just being like God. And, and you notice how when the Spirit of God has been really working in the body of believers that they're much more likely to forgive those who have insulted them frustrated them, irritated them, confused them. And also appears to say something about Saul's feelings of security about his position. He didn't have anything to prove. God confirmed it. Right? He, he won. The battle was won. God confirmed it in his life. There was no further confirmation. He didn't have to stick their heads on stakes and say, like, don't ever do that again. Right? He was proven. He didn't need to nail his detractors there. He... he and make them pay because, you know, the proof was in the pudding. He delivered them. So notice how they publicly met again, but this time at Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And we'll talk a little bit more in depth about this in a little bit, but notice how all things had been put in place. Private confirmation, last week's uh, teaching, and a divine confirmation in the deliverance of the people. Now, and then there was also the public ceremony in between. So all three of those things, private confirmation, public ceremony, and then now this divine confirmation by the deliverance of people. All three were given, and so the people rejoiced. Now, for those of us who are leaders and for those of us who are wanting to be leaders, do you, do you like the pressure of having to be confirmed? Think about it. What do you think about this? There, there's a lot of faith required about this, isn't there? Right? Faith for public confirmation, that people will publicly affirm you and say, yep, that's it. There's a lot of faith there. 
There is also a lot of faith for your life to produce something that backs up your calling. Right? Like, how do you know? You don't know until you do it. There's a lot of faith there. And there, there's a lot of devotion there too. It takes a lot of hard work. You got to put in the work. And you got to exercise those things to show that you are worthy of the call. That people can see that your life is worthy of that call. And so God's kingdom requires faith and devotion. You take a look at verse 14 where Samuel said, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Why did Samuel say that? Was there a need for the kingdom to be renewed? Obviously, yes. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. And they were getting ready to confirm Saul publicly, remember? Chapter 10, verse 17. Let's go back there. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Can you imagine the embarrassment to hear this from God through Samuel? You would think that this was a time of celebration. That we're bringing our king up on stage. And that Samuel would have a a little bit more tact. That that, that was going to, you know, come on Samuel. Why are you bringing this up? You already told them that it was wrong for them to have a king why are you rubbing it in their face again and saying that oh god today you're rejecting god why are you doing that samuel no one likes to be told again and again and again that they're wrong right didn't you hate when your parents did that to you right some of your parents still do that to you and the the lord seems to commit this big social faux pas on the largest stage And he seems to be doing something embarrassing on a day that was supposed to be on a day of celebration on a national level. And you would think that God would just move on, that he just celebrate with everyone this memorable occasion, but he doesn't. He says, but you have today rejected your God. Why did Samuel bring this up again? Why isn't this just let go of and everyone moves on? Because he had to renew the kingdom. That's why. He had to renew the kingdom. That's why Samuel said in chapter 11, verse 14, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. What does it mean to renew the kingdom? And it has nothing to do with Saul's kingdom. It has everything to do with God's kingdom. To renew the kingdom means to renew your allegiance to God. To restore your commitment to God. To reaffirm your submission to God. And that needed to be done. And Samuel calls them to do that at Gilgal. Now where was Gilgal? Why Gilgal? What's the story behind Gilgal? Gilgal is near the Jordan River. And if you go back to Joshua chapter 3 and 4, it's uh, where they camped before they went into Canaan. And God did this impossible thing at Gilgal where the Jordan River it just flooded and there was no way for the Israelites to cross into Canaan. But God made a way for Israel to get across. Gilgal points to God's promises when things don't look promising. 
So returning to Gilgal is really significant for renewing the kingdom, returning to renew the submission, the allegiance, the commitment to the kingship of God. It's an act of repentance. God's kingdom requires our wholehearted devotion. It's the same for us today. Maybe some of us have to renew the kingdom today. We try to do this every week with communion at Regeneration. Every week we have the elements out for communion, and and that's the place of renewing the kingdom, or a place. that You can do that. that. That's a place where you can submit to Jesus as His servant and acknowledge to Him that He's your Lord and He's your King again and again every week. We have it out there. And it's time for us to do business with Jesus. And I know you guys have done that earlier today but if you if you need to do that again feel free on this on the last song it it's time for us to repent again that's that's the christian life we need to continually repent we need to continually throw down our idols and worship god alone the communion table is a type of gilgal and we can go there to renew the kingdom to renew our allegiance to the king jesus who bought us with with his own life And so, as we do this last song, feel free that even if you've done communion already, that you can do that and and, and do business with God and come to a Gilgal. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, you are our God and that you speak to us, that you're a living, dynamic God who publicly confirms us in our calling and then in our life that it is proven that we are called. And it is only through faith that that's able to be done in, in devotion. We ask, Lord, that uh, for those of us who, who need to renew the kingdom, that you would uh, work in our hearts to do that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.